If there is one thing that you will learn about me, it is that I am perpetually shy. I'm a wallflower. <laughs> that should make for a good interview. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Tencent Takes, the show where we secretly spend lunch money at the comic shop, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the pastry of pandemonium herself, Jessica Frazier. I am a snack. You're, you are correct. Absolutely. <laughs> Thought you might like that one. Uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Today is a very special day on Dollar Bin Discoveries because we are joined by comic writer and editor extraordinaire, Paul Kupperberg. Hey, hi. Hello, Paul. Would you uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, I'm I'm a comic book writer and editor, Paul Kupperberg. I think you've done a, an admirable job with that. Uh, I've been in the, in the business for, uh, for a few years, since 1975. I started writing for Charlton Comics and DC Comics and... Uh, I wrote a lot of stuff like Superman and Doom Patrol and Peacemaker and Supergirl and was an editor uh, at DC for a while and uh, and have done various and sundry other things. But you're not a yeah, damn just, business, but. <laughs> <laughs> just minor characters like all the ones you just listed who are now some of the biggest properties in entertainment. Oh, but, Aquaman know. too. That's right. If we're going to go that route. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Oh yeah, no, no big deal. Casual. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are actually Aquaman stands on the show. We did a two-part episode yeah. series way back where we talked about Namor versus Aquaman because they both had series at the same time, mm -hmm. and and we are firmly Team Aquaman. Me too. Absolutely. Uh, great character. <laughs> He's. Uh, it always used to bug me when people would would mock him. Yes, he can talk <laughs> to fish, but you can't. So you know, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you are new to the show, our main episodes drop every other week and provide in-depth looks into interesting moments in comic books and how they tie into pop culture and history. But today is, as I said, one of our Dollar Bin Discovery mini episodes, and we do those in between our deep dives. These are centered around the fact that we spend a lot of time rooting through dollar bins at local shops, looking for interesting stuff. And while a lot of the issues that we find are fun and weird, they may not be enough for us to do a deep dive on. At the moment, we always reserve the right to change our mind later. And each episode features us talking about one random issue we came across in the dollar bins and what it is, what goes on inside it, and why it's interesting. These mini episodes are meant to provide you with some weekly content between our more in-depth discussions about the weirder and more interesting moments in comic book history. And Paul, you are the guest of honor, so please tell us what you have brought to the dollar bin table today. Well, I have brought PT Boat Skipper Captain Storm number one. It's cover dated June of 1964. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Used to be when I was a kid, there was a bookstore in Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue called My Friend's Bookstore. And um, it was great, great play. Greatest bookstore ever. I mean, I, you know, it, it's like been the model of what I've been looking for ever since. But uh, they had tons of books and paperbacks and magazines, but they also had a lot of comics. And in the back, there were bins that were back then a quarter. So, you know. You could get an entire run of Captain Storm, all 18 issues, for whatever 18 times 25 cents is. Because you know, oh, that's what that meant back then. You know, I see books today that, you know, $14,000. Those used to be in the quarter bin, Ooh. you know. Yeah. 
But anyway, um, this is this is just a, a really great comic. It is uh, written by Robert Kaniger, who was the master of of war comics, uh, writer and editor. And it was drawn by Irv Novick, who most people in comics know more for his later work on Batman and, and the like. But he was a war comic staple for Joe Kubert and for Bob Kaniger. And this guy, the cover copy is. He's on the bridge of a PT boat, uh, the, the deck of a PT boat, and there's a Japanese Zero blasting at him, come diving in right at him, and he's firing at it with a machine gun, and he's taking uh, hits in his, in, in his left leg. And the cover copy is, Skipper, your leg's been blasted. And Captain Storm, <laughs> Captain Storm replies, it's only wood. I'll get another. Right there. <laughs> Introducing War's unique wonder, the skipper who shakes a wooden leg at the enemy in the book-length depth charge, <laughs> Killer Hunt. All right? So Captain Storm, now, this is 1964, a year after John F. Kennedy's PT-109. Oh, wow. That was uh, a okay. movie starring Cliff Robertson as, as, uh, as, as JFK, and it was all about John F. Kennedy was a decorated war hero. You know, he was a PT boat yes. skipper. And so... Bob Kaniger, who never met a trend he didn't like, he obviously came up with this to, uh, to do his thing. But it's a great comic. And Storm gets his first command, and he loses it. It gets blasted out from under him by a Japanese submarine, the Red Sub, just his blood-red submarine. And, you know, there's the uh, it's very Kaniger-esque. If you're familiar with his stuff, you'll recognize all his tropes. But, you know, there's, there's the only survivor. He's floating on a piece of wood. His leg's been blasted. Everybody else is dead. And he's like, you know, I'll get you. And the Japanese commander, you know, laughing at him from the, from the cone of the, uh, of the submarine. And then it just goes, you know, he goes to rehab. He gets himself put on uh, back on active duty after he proves he can, you know, he can still operate with a, a wooden leg. And it's based on a true, true case. I think it was a British uh, a fighter pilot who, uh, mm. who was put back on active duty with a wooden leg. But. Anyway, he goes off and now he's, you know, hunting for, for, for the guy who destroyed his first PT boat. And one of his new crew members, of course, is the younger brother of one of the guys he lost on mm. that first boat. Kaniger was a master. He missed no oh, beats. Wow. Great comic, Novik, who was a wonderful artist to begin with. He did this kind of, he, he gets to ink himself on this. And he does this kind of, kind of scratchy, you know, weird style of inking. That's just great. Just, you know, it's, it's rough and, and, you know, combat ready. But uh, it's, it's great stuff. Uh, if you can go online and look for pages, check them out. They're just uh, beautiful work. And again, it lasted 18 issues. But, you know, I always, always loved the character. And there I was one day in a, uh, it was about, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. I was in the uh, comic shop in Stanford, Connecticut, when Stanford, Connecticut still had a comic shop. Mm-hmm. I literally was going through the dollar bin and there it was, this ragged copy, but you know, it doesn't have to be in good shape to be able to read it. So No. I mean that's one exactly. of the best things about the dollar bins is yeah. we can find stuff that are that are oftentimes grail issues for some people and we have come across stuff that's really cool. Like I, I have come across weird variants that are actually going for a lot of money on eBay or we recently had one where we talked about this like recalled alf issue from Marvel that I found for two bucks because it was ratty and the guy didn't know what he had a recalled elf yeah. issue what did he uh is that the one where they, had... they didn't black out his nuts <laughs> well you're not far off it's the one where it looks like he is uh i'm gonna call it a struggle snuggle with a seal yeah okay <laughs> i don't remember and that 
It's one of the later issues. But yeah, I found this copy where I'm like, it is maybe if you were going to get it graded like a three. Right. Like maybe. <laughs> right. But but it's really hard to find because it was recalled. And so it's become a collector's item. I love comic books. Oh, they're great. That's, that is a big part of our show is we love talking about the weird and the silly. Exactly. Um, all right. Jessica, how about you? Well, mine is actually one that Mike assisted me in finding actually <laughs> because i don't know i cannot remember it it was probably at one of the comic cons we were at recently or it was at the dollar bins at the back cave I it was at the back cave i'm looking at what it you have in your notes cave. it was at the back okay cave. so it was at the back cave in santa rosa and mike pulled it out and he shoved it into my hands and was like you need this <laughs> And it is Skate Man issue number one. It's sure. published by PC uh, Pacific Comics of November 1983 by Neil Adams. Yes, indeed. And oh, so good. I actually, yeah, again, so good. Those dollar bins are just amazing. Like you said, you never know what you're going to find. And we are starting off strong with a masked man wearing legitimate quad roller skates protecting striking migrant workers from men trying to beat them into intimidation but alas it's a trap and skate man aka billy moon gets the snot kicked out of him and after the group scatters at the sound of sirens he has a kid named paco help him get away while he's recovering we find out that billy was drafted into the vietnam war saw some things that still haunted him so someone suggested roller derby as an outlet for yes. him. And he found community and all of these really good things through them. But one day there was this tragic accident and Billy caused the death of one of his close friends. Or so he thought. And the skates became fused to his feet and he became... A no. <laughs> he was bitten by radioactive skates. By radioactive skates. Oh became... my God. Gosh. That's it. I'll become a skate. So we see the backstory of him meeting Paco, you know, this kid selling comic books, his love for Angel, whose life ends violently after being killed. There's a lot of death in this, honestly. After being killed by a biker that Billy sees driving away, and he's got this skull on his jacket that looks very much like a Punisher skull, if we're being honest. Very close. It's not quite there, but it's very close. Angel dies in his arms, and so he has this misguided rage, and he's, like, throwing slurs at Paco, and he needs to get revenge for the death of his love. So we get this training montage, and we get to see how the persona <laughs> of Skate Man comes to be as he saves yet another woman named Jill from being kidnapped. We have an explosive ending with him carrying her out of the flames, you know, skates flying. So exciting first issue definitely drew me in as a reader. The storyline and Billy's motivations were pretty solidly spelled out. And I liked that he truly was helping the community and really looking out for the underdog, which I think a lot of the bigger name superheroes tend to lose sight of as they go off to save, you know, the literal planet mm -hmm. a lot of the time. So this character felt really down to earth and believable and connected. And I also really liked the art and the coloring. It was dynamic. There was so much good movement within the frames. And it, it was a little exposition-y at some points. But I think it was necessary to the storyline. And I think it, that would have been challenging and likely lengthy to try to convey the same info in pictures. 
So I will be seeking out more of this. Thank you so much, Mike. <laughs> I, I don't think you. there's another issue. I think it was like no! widely regarded as like a flop. It did not. Yeah. Are you joking me? Yeah, it no. was. I think Neil brought it back later when he was doing the continuity comics. Didn't, was Skateman one of those? Oh, he, did he? No, right Skateman. Uh, no? no, I don't. We because we've talked about continuity a bit. I yeah. I at least have not come across anything from continuity regarding Skateman. Okay. Wow. Because we talked about Crazy Man. Right. Uh, in one of our early oh, episodes. Oh, gosh. Man, so you're telling me Crazy Man got so many issues and Skate Man got a lousy one? I would have taken Skate Man over Crazy Man. <laughs> Crazy Man got seven issues. Seven. That's ridiculous. I, you know, I did a comic called what Goggle have... Man and it only got one issue. <laughs> I don't know. What is this, Bizarro World? <sighs> Gotta have Neil Adams doing it, I guess. No, I didn't have Neil Adams doing it. This was this was a uh, a custom comic for the Power Tool Institute of America. What? Oh. Okay, we, we have to have you back on but, to talk about this because a point. man's got to make a living. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> oh. That's amazing. It was it was talking it was talking safety goggles. Remember, kids, I, we're here for to- eye protection at all times. Yeah, Paul, we're gonna have to have you back on to talk about this, like in depth. Just the goggle amazing. man. Just we goggle man. It's about time. Go- it's about freaking time for goggle man. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. Oh. Uh. Well, Mike, what about you? What have you brought to us today? Uh, well, like you, in honor of our guest, I chose something from the Bronze Age. I found a copy of Star Reach number one from April 1974. And this is this is one of the comics that I picked up as part of that pile that I mentioned a while back at the Petaluma Antique Fair last fall. Yes. So it was one one of those things where I came away with this giant pile of of comics and there were some real gems in there, but it all averaged out to be about a buck issue. So I'm counting it as dollar bin discovery. It's really interesting because this was apparently one of the first mainstream independent comic series. It was published by Mike Friedrich and it's a black and white anthology series. Uh, this issue features contributions from some pretty heavy hitters. We've got Ed Hicks, Steve Skeets, Howard Chaikin, Jim Starlin, and Walt Simonson. And the first story is Death Building by Jim Starlin, where we are introduced to Steve Apollo, who is walking through New York City. He goes to the seemingly abandoned building, is guided by a general feeling to a specific elevator, and chooses the 13th floor. He reveals via his internal monologue that he's been taught what to do by the seven, and then he apparently took some acid, and then we see his silhouette transforming <laughs> while he rides the elevator. He gets out and he is this hulking barbarian standing on a path that leads to a floating castle in space known as the Great Castle of the Lost, which is apparently Death's Fortress. Apollo enters the building and finds himself in a duel with Death himself, who looks kind of like a more dramatic version of Skeletor, if we're going to be honest, which is a character I know Paul has familiarity with. Vaguely, yeah. (laughs) So... They basically monologue back and forth at each other. Apollo says he's there to destroy death and allow mankind to basically have eternal life or be elevated into a race of new gods. The dialogue's very dramatic, but it's also very confusing and nonsensical. What happens when you don't have an editor? I know, right? (laughs) Well, and we've talked a bit about Jim Starlin, where it is very well known that Jim Starlin did a lot of drugs and like a lot of psychedelics and, and this comic shows <laughs> like, <laughs> I got to tell you, even back then, even people who didn't take them was still writing like they did. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm sure. 
Uh, but yeah, so Apollo beheads death and then death still manages to kill him. And then he has his head reattached by his very nubile servants. And Apollo realizes the seven lied to him about everything because, quote, the only truth is death, end quote. And then the story closes with Jim Starlin in the same building that Apollo walked into, stepping over Apollo's fresh corpse to get into the elevator and start the cycle over again. And so it's not exactly clear if this was just an acid trip that ended badly or what. But Mm. anyway, then that's where it ends. The next one is Fish Myths by Steve Skeets. It's a very little short story about a fish who gets disillusioned and decides to drop out of his school, move to the suburbs, and raise caviar, but then winds up discovering it's not what he thought it would be and eventually returns to his school. After that is A Tale of Sword and Sorcery, written by Ed Hicks and drawn by Walt Simonson. It's this surreal, like almost avant-garde fantasy comic where we get what feels like descriptive notes from the script used to describe what's going on in the comic, but they're done in a weird way. So, for example, there's an early page where the text specifically wraps around the page like explaining what's going on and then it spirals inwards and the way that the eye moves and follows the text we're able to kind of see this action unfold without it being divided into actual panels oh that's interesting it's really interesting actually and it's really cool because it's like early walt simonson art which is really gorgeous but it's this unnamed champion with a magical sword floating in the air next to him he meets a beggar in a hole who tells him to recount his tales of might the champion does this, telling him how he acquired the sword, and then he pulls the beggar out of the hole. The beggar then shoves the champion into the hole that he just escaped from, turns into James Cagney, and shoots the hero after telling him to eat hot lead. And then the <laughs> sure. beggar was actually a magician, and he walks off saying, we magicians get off doing James Cagney impressions, and that's it. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? <sighs> yeah, there's another fish story by Skeets. And then we get to the comic that has the cover image, which is Cody Starbuck by Howard Chaikin. And this is like the biggest story of the issue. It begins aboard a cathedral ship where Cody Starbuck is rescuing uh, Evangeline Breedlove. Okay. From a head monk who kidnapped her from a planetary lord that she was betrothed to. Starbuck and his crew get her out and then escape the ship just before it's blown to smithereens by bombs they planted. After Starbuck and Breedlove hook up in his cabin, she's returned to her fiancé, Lord Pickett, who tells Starbuck there's a visiting ambassador who's also an old acquaintance of his. The ambassador turns out to be a man named Trachman, who was Starbuck's former captain five years ago during a war and wound up betraying his fleet but pinned the blame on Starbuck and ended the pirate's military career. Starbuck is told he can't fight the dude because he's an ambassador, so he leaves and goes out into the city, and then Pickett is assassinated in his quarters. Starbuck goes back to his ship, is attacked on board, and we learn that the assassin was sent by Trachman. So he tracks down Trachman, and eventually Trachman tries to escape through a teleportation doorway, and Starbuck shoots it, causing it to explode and scatter the villain's atoms across the universe. The planet descends into chaos. Starbuck convinces Breedlove to escape with them as the planet falls apart, and basically, that's it. And finally, we get The Birth of Death, which is another story by Jim Starlin. It's presented as this guy Mort telling a story to his young nephew, Johnny, for what feels like a traditional retelling of the Bible's creation myth, but with God and angels and Lucifer's rebellion and Adam and the Garden of Paradise, albeit with Starlin's cosmic fantasy aesthetic. And then we're told that God created death as a one-man execution squad tasked with ending 
anyone who could even challenge God's power. So he hunts down all the immortal beings around, except for the seven most powerful who have been living in defiance of him, while he carries out a secondary task of collecting souls when their time is up. Johnny falls asleep in Mort's arms, and it turns out Mort is actually death himself. He carries Johnny's spirit into his realm. And the comic ends with a verse from the poem, A Psalm of Life by Henry Longfellow. And there's also a one-page origin of God by Starlin, which is literally a couple of blank panels, a spark, and then we see cosmic eyes in space. It's kind of cute. And that's it. Mort. Look at that name. I know, right? It was there the whole time. The whole time. (laughs) Spoilers. What a twist. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. It was the 70s, Jake. Yeah, the whole book is like fascinating, and it's really cool to see these stories from creators who would go on to become giants in the industry at relatively early points of their careers. Like, Chaikin's comic is really interesting because it's actually much more violent and sexual than anything I ever saw when he was working with Marvel or DC. Well, and th- yeah, this was, uh, you know, this was uncensored. This was, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Mike Friedrich wasn't doing underground comics. He called the, he's called these ground level comics. Oh, that's really cool. And uh, he did uh, he did that book. He also did a, a comic called Quack, which was funny animal stories, uh, mm-hmm. which my uh, Chaikin and my brother contributed to. They had uh, a feature called um, On the Skids, which was uh, oh, basically cool. Alan, my brother Alan and Howard as uh, as funny animals um, um, hitting all the night spots in the seventies in New York City. I love how you had this on hand and are just holding it up in front of the camera. That's yeah, well, crazy. I just pulled it from the shelf and you started talking about the Star Reach stuff. But I, I was wondering what yeah, you were up to. Yeah. <laughs> on the skids, I, I, I collected them. I, I printed them up in a comic, uh, you know, black and white comics. Uh, uh, but wow. yeah, so that's fantastic. But yeah, I mean, you know, I was like, hey, do the comic you want to do. Cool, I'm going to have yeah. God as a character. All right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And like the other thing is Starlin's two series, they feel very reminiscent of the ones that he later did for Malibu with his series Breed, because that starts off as like a very ground level kind of like almost horror action comic. And then it gets real weird cosmic fantasy real quick. Nothing personal, but, you know, Jim has one story. <laughs> I mean, as someone who's read a lot of them, you're not wrong. Which means I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> He's, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. Like it's, some of the best stories, some of the best stories in comics. It's are, variations on a theme, but it's all, yeah. you know, it's all on yeah. a theme. Yeah, no, it was great. So, yeah, so we chose these stories because they were part of the Bronze Age of Comics, which was 1970 to 1985. And we did this because you have a new book out which ties mm-hmm. directly into that era. So would you tell us a little bit about that? Why, certainly. Um, it's called uh, Direct Conversations. I talked with fellow DC Comics Bronze Age creators. And um, what I did was I, I sat down and interviewed 10 uh, old friends. So, you know, I mean, it was, it, it was tough work. I had to sit down and, you know, talk with my friends. But, um, oh, no. uh, you know, it was just the whole <laughs> point was to reminisce about 1975 and thereabouts. We all broke into the business around the same time. Uh, early to mid seventies, and uh, you know, all led different careers. It took different paths, but we all kind of knew the same people and hung out together. And and I spoke with the aforementioned Mister Chaikin. Uh, yeah, who, you know, was I was just a kid uh, uh, when I first met him. He and my brother were friends and worked together. So uh, uh, you know, I've known him forever. Jack C. Harris, 
who was uh, a DC Comics editor and writer. Uh, Tony Isabella, creator of Black Lightning. Uh, mm -hmm. Paul Levitz, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, Steve Mitchell, who uh, uh, was an inker and, and uh, now a filmmaker. Joe Staten, uh, Bob Rosakis, Anthony Tallon, the colorist. Bob Toomey, who you may not have heard of or remember. He was a writer for a few years in the mid-70s, and he, he left. Uh, you know, he was one of the people who, who had enough and left. Um, and Michael Uslan, the producer of the Batman movies. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we all sat down, and we just like, you know, we're talking about these people whose names you probably don't know, like Jack Adler and Saul Harrison and Murray Boltonoff and Gerda Cattell and, and uh, things like that. But the DC Comics of 1975 was... It was owned by Warner Brothers, but it was still, you know, still felt like a mom and pop shop. There were 35 people on staff. And, you know, uh, and nine of those, I think, were in accounting upstairs. So <laughs> <laughs> when did the Warner Brothers acquisition happen? I know it was in the, the 70s. No, right? 60s. But was it the yeah, 60s? It was like I didn't 60s, know it was that far back. Seven or something like that. Yeah, it was all uh, it was uh, oh, wow. it was one of the funeral homes and parking garages and cleaning services. Uh well, you know, it was uh, uh, Steve, um, what's his name? Um, anyway, a uh, guy who, who uh, you know, his father-in-law owned a cleaning company or, or parking garages or something in New York. And Warner Brothers was, was going bankrupt, so they bought that. And then mm -hmm. they started picking up little media companies like, you know, DC, which was privately owned. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it was a while, but it still, you didn't feel it. You know, it's like. Like yeah. if they knew your face, you could walk through the door. There was no nobody stopping you. Uh, uh, up until the late sixties, early seventies, once a week, there's a dispute. I remember it being Wednesdays. Other people remember Tuesdays. Other Thursdays. But once a week, when they could, they opened the office up for um, tourists to fans. You showed up in the lobby. What? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I went on a few of them when I was a kid. You show up in the lobby and some production guy would walk you through the place and there'd be Neil Adams or Murphy Anderson sitting at a drawing board working and, and there's these guys in productions, you know, making corrections and walk by, you know, Julie Schwartz gives you a dirty look when you walk by and it was great. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was just a very different place. And by the time I left in 2006, there were 350 people on staff, 19 <laughs> vice presidents, and um, it didn't feel so uh, homespun anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you were gracious enough to share a PDF of the book with us. And it was really fun to read. And I, I love yeah. this stuff. I think it's really important that, that this stuff gets documented, you know, especially as that generation of creators is now starting to, to die out. Well, that was it. You know, I mean, I, I dedicated the book to my old friend, Martin Pascoe, who was, you know, mm -hmm. a, a seminal Bronze Age writer and later, um, you know, Emmy Award winning writer for his work on Batman and Phantasm. Very talented guy and great storyteller. Great storyteller. He he uh, he did hours with John Ciuntis on on Word Balloon, but he dropped dead. You know my age, and he's dead. So I decided yeah. I'd better start talking to these guys before we're all dead, because I don't feel so good. I don't feel good, and I'm 41. Yeah. Like I well, yeah, well, yeah, and I'm 36, and I'm I'm just feeling that too. Just, just, just wait, children. <laughs> the things haven't started physically oh, aching no. yet. Uh, no, like I, I've already got bad news because I, so I, I've always been a big fan of skate man because I used to be a roller derby referee. So I was a ski patroller. I did roller derby and I used to run 10 miles a day. My knees are garbage. 
Yeah, and I roller skate. Actually, I'm going roller skating tonight. That was the other reason that I picked that because I am legitimately going roller skating tonight. (laughs) But no, I fell like once on my knees recently without pads on and they've it, the one knee hasn't been the same yeah. since. I've been muting myself to like crack it throughout this whole that thing. Would be game. <laughs> yep. So where can people buy your book, by the way? Well, it's available on Amazon or they could buy it directly from me. I, I'll sign personalized books. Uh, they can order it from my website at goldcupperberg.net. We'll include a link in the show notes. Um, and it's uh, a little shop with all of my books because um, I also have, uh, there's direct, uh, direct comments which was the book i did before direct conversations which was uh uh interviews from 1990 that i had done for dc comics um uh uh direct currents which was the um the, the comic shop giveaway that they used to send out i wrote that thing since the 70s i had started i had done a few years w- working in uh, public relations uh just before the um uh the dc implosion but you know i kept that gig and you know i, I wrote it forever uh, and, and in the last incarnation I worked on, uh, every month there was a, a feature article about whoever was working on whatever was the feature project that month. And I would do an interview with them, transcribe it, and then write an article using, you know, a third of the, of, of the interview. And I found transcripts of like close to two dozen of these uh, on an old disk drive. Don't ever throw away your 3.5 floppies, boys and girls. so i you know i I fixed them up and i annotated them and and published them uh, along with some other old fanzine interviews that aren't widely available so uh you know there's that and there's also my uh, paul kupperberg's illustrated guide to writing comics you don't mind if i plug do you no not at all not at all please do but uh, i also wrote a book about you know uh, a how-to guide to to writing comics and other books and they're all available at paulkupperberg.net Perfect. And like I said, we'll include that link in the show notes. Paul, thank you so much for being on this episode with us. You're welcome. You're going to be back in a couple of episodes to talk about the DC miniseries, The World of Krypton. Next week, we will be back with our anniversary episode. And then after that, we'll have another Dollar Bin Discovery. And then after that, we'll be talking about The World of Krypton with Paul again. And until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, and Paul Kupperberg, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookbombdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, for now. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica's spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. And I also have my website, paulkumperberg.net. And we will include all of those links in the show notes. If you would like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.